We are hearing from the family of Heidi Allen for the very first time. A snowy Easter Sunday just before 8 in the morning when Heidi made her last transaction. The family of Heidi Allen of Oswego County says the new details on her kidnapping and presumed death. Many in the Oswego community believe he and his brother Gary were responsible for Heidi Allen's disappearance. 24 years after his arrest for the kidnapping and presumed murder of 18-year-old Heidi Allen. I've been in the system day one, and, you know, there's nothing else I can tell you. All I know is they ended up chopping her up. What do you think happened to Heidi? What was done with her body? The thing, the thing was, there wasn't really any hard evidence at all. Well, it's not even, they didn't even bring her in the house. Gary killed this girl, didn't he? He stopped a lot. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. You'll never know. This is the story of Heidi Allen, the 18-year-old convenience store clerk who mysteriously vanished on Easter of 1994 without a trace. The information you hear in this podcast comes directly from original court documents, police reports, witness statements, and recorded interviews. And if you haven't yet, go listen to the first two episodes. Heidi Allen had been missing for just about a year and the Thibodeau trials were just around the corner. It seemed like law enforcement was finally closing in on answers. Or so we thought. This is Peebles for the people. I'm Alex Peebles. I don't know what the world's been missing, but I think we need a miracle. I'm Say, call Bobby Wheeler. I know about Heidi Allen. Call Bobby Wheeler. Call FBI. On a cold winter's night, between the pre-trial hearing and Gary Thibodeau's trial, a man was running up and down Green Road in Mexico, New York, yelling that he had information about Heidi Allen's disappearance. That man's name was Michael Borer. Is that name ringing any bells? In the first episode, you might recall the post office called in a lead to police about mail mysteriously piling up at a P.O. box in New Haven for two weeks directly following Heidi's kidnapping. Well, the owner of that P.O. box was Michael Borer. The outburst on Green Road earned Borer an interview with the FBI. An agent interviewed Borer at the FBI field office in Syracuse. Here's an excerpt from that agent's notes from that interview on February 1st, 1995. Quote, Has heard rumors, again, by local townspeople, that Heidi Allen was involved in drug usage and theorizes Allen was kidnapped and murdered to prevent her from disclosing information regarding a cocaine ring run by Gary Thibodeau in the Oswego, New York area. End quote. Though provocative, Borer's allegations were filled with information gathered through anonymous sources that he refused to identify. He just said they were, quote, reliable sources, end quote. So there was no way of corroborating them. And police have already debunked the theory that Heidi was in any way involved in providing police information about drugs. We learned that in the last episode. And there was zero evidence about Gary running a cocaine ring in Oswego. Gary Thibodeau was certainly not your standout citizen. In fact, people who knew him would describe him 
as rough around the edges. Gary was charged with small-time cocaine possession, but to draw a line from his misdemeanor drug charge from Massachusetts to running a drug ring in Oswego County was a bit of a leap. Regardless of Borer's theories of what happened to Heidi and why she may have been taken, Gary Thibodeau's trial was just around the corner. To start the trial, some procedural things had to be taken care of, like the jury selection. This is an extremely important part of the judicial process. It's the selection of people who will ultimately decide if a defendant is guilty. That decision by the jury is theoretically based on the evidence presented in the trial. This is a chance for the attorneys to choose jury members that they believe will be impartial to outside influence and prejudice. To get a better understanding of this process, I called Gary's lawyer at the time, Joe Fahey. What you're looking for uh, are people who either have not heard about the case, followed the case, or if they have, can set aside what they've uh, seen, heard, or read and decide the case based on the evidence in the courtroom. If either lawyer thinks there's information that suggests a juror is prejudiced about the case, they can ask the judge to remove that juror. That's known as challenging for cause. Attorneys can also remove potential jurors without stating cause. These removals are called preemptory challenges. And based on the type of case, lawyers are given a certain number of preemptory challenges. Of course, some of the subjects you're going you're to cover is whether or not people think simply because somebody's been charged, they must be guilty of something. Um, so it's, it's a chance to try to find people who don't have strong feelings about the case um, and <clears throat> can promise to keep an open mind uh, down to the end of it. Um, now, you know, this, that, that becomes a much tougher job when you're trying a high-profile case in a, uh, in, 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 a, in a small community. In this case, a high-profile crime that took place in a small town where rumors surrounding the case were spreading like wildfire. Virtually everyone in Oswego County had heard of Heidi Allen's kidnapping, and much of the public's knowledge of this case came through the media. Wild speculation in the media even prompted a gag order from the judge, meaning anyone involved in the case could not talk to the media or the public about it. Gag orders are used to protect against creating any preconceived notions about the defendant or the case. You could argue, though, in this case, that the gag order came too little too late. It seemed like most of the community had already made up their minds. Well, it, 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 it's very important because what you don't want is, uh, especially in a small county where you've got a, a, a potentially sh smaller jury pool, uh, you don't want uh, unsubstantiated or even substantiated highly prejudicial information um, polluting, the, uh, polluting the jury pool. Um, I mean, that particular case uh, involving the uh, leaking of an unsubstantiated kidnapping in another state would have been, you know, highly, highly, highly prejudicial. 
Keep in mind, this trial was primarily based on witness testimonies. 49 witness testimonies to be exact. And there was no physical evidence to corroborate the theory that Gary Thibodeau was one of the men responsible for the disappearance of Heidi Allen. And Prosecutor Donald Dodd conceded to that. The trial began with opening arguments from both the defense and prosecution. Because the burden of proof falls on the prosecution, they begin with their opening statement, followed by the defense. The opening statement is a chance for both sides to lay out what the jury can expect in this trial, almost like a movie preview, which is exactly how Dodd described it. Dodd went through what witnesses the jury would hear from with a brief overview of what the jury could expect to hear from those witnesses. As you could imagine, in a case with 49 witnesses, this process took a while. In his opening, Dodd also went through what the jurors weren't going to hear in this trial. Quote, Ladies and gentlemen, you will not hear much testimony about the motive or reason behind this. End quote. Then Dodd said, quote, Also, ladies and gentlemen, you're not going to hear any testimony from the people relative to the transfer of physical evidence. Physical evidence, for example, in Richard Thibodeau's van. The police looked but didn't find it when they searched the van on April 9th, 1994, end quote. So in his opening statement, Dodd just said that they found nothing inside of Richard Thibodeau's van that would link either Thibodeau brother to the kidnapping of Heidi Allen. Fahey presented his opening statement after Dodd wrapped up. Quote, one thing we certainly agree on in this case is that this case is about the fact that Heidi Allen is missing. I don't know that we know any more about that today than we did last April the 3rd, end quote. Unlike Dodd, Fahey did not go through the witnesses individually. Instead, Fahey focused on what he considered to be the important parts of this case. Quote, you're going to learn also, and I don't think there's going to be any dispute about the fact that no one, no one sees Gary Thibodeau anywhere near the DNW convenience store on Easter morning of April the 3rd, end quote. Like Dodd said, the jury was not going to see any physical evidence linking Gary to this crime. So what evidence would link Gary to the crime? Primarily the testimony of Christopher Bivens. But nowhere in Bivens' statements or testimony is Gary even mentioned. Really, the testimonies of the two jailhouse informants were all the prosecution had against Gary. Fahey also made sure to mention that many of the witnesses the jury would hear from had spoken to police multiple times about what they saw. Quote, All of the people you're going to hear testify in this case, and particularly those who are going to testify in the beginning of this case, listen very, very carefully to what they say. But don't just listen very carefully to what they say. Listen to how many times they have talked about these events. How many versions have they given of these events? End quote. Fahey closed his opening statement seemingly confident that after this case was said and done, the only conclusion warranted would be a verdict of not guilty. But as any experienced defense attorney can attest, including Fahey himself, it is nearly impossible to predict the decision of any jury especially in a case where there were so many unanswered questions and 
a whole community watching closely, looking for any type of closure. You know, what happens, there's kind of a pattern that runs through some of, some of these cases like this, and I've seen it in other uh, abduction cases, for lack of a better term. There is intense pressure, and you, and you see a lot, of, a lot of activity surrounding it. You see searches, you see uh, fundraisers, you see other um, support services that the community wants to get involved in because they're understandably concerned about the fact that you have a young woman who's missing or, or, or uh, and the pressure suddenly is on law enforcement to solve that. And in those cases, law enforcement is sometimes uh, susceptible to picking out a suspect and making the evidence fit. On top of that, Fahey believed there was more to the story that he was still unaware of. Before the trial began, Dodd turned over five boxes full of leads from the investigation. The boxes held a combined 1,500 leads, which were listed in a five-page letter. But there was no real proof that Dodd was holding any information back from the defense. And I've reached out to Dodd multiple times, but I have yet to hear back. Hi, I'm looking for Judge Dodd. Not here. What can I do for you? He's not here. Would you be able no. to Would you be able to put me through to his voicemail? Um, I'm his secretary. What can I do for you? Uh, yeah. So my name is Alex Peebles. I am actually a. Oh yeah, right. I know who you are. Um, he's. I won't answer the phone. Call back and um leave your message on the answer machine. He is going to be in later tonight. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Hi, this is the Office of Justice Donald H. Dodd in Oswego Town Court. At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. To leave a callback number, press 5. Good morning, Judge Dodd. This is Alex Peebles. Just wanted to follow up on a couple of voicemails I left you. I'm doing a, uh, a podcast on the Heidi Allen case and just to... Uh, uh, was hoping to get an interview with you about that. So uh, if you could, give me a call back when you get a chance. My cell number is 315-345-6312. Thanks. The first witness called by the prosecution was Heidi Allen's boyfriend, Brett Law. Law testified that he knew who Gary Thibodeau was and that they had played pool at a local bar before. Law also testified that Heidi and Gary had met too and that Gary commented about how attractive Heidi was. This was the only connection anyone could make between Gary Thibodeau and Heidi Allen. During the cross-examination of Law, Fahey asked why Law had accompanied Heidi to work the morning she vanished, and why that had been the norm for Law and Heidi when she had to open the store by herself. Question. Mr. Law, can you tell me why you were going more frequently? Answer. I had the opportunity to go more often. Question. Is that the only reason? Answer. Heidi didn't like opening alone. Period. There was no one person who she was more concerned about than any other. Question. You're certain of that? Answer. Yes, sir. Question. She never expressed any concern about one person to you? Answer. 
the concern which you're regarding was pretty well over with by the time April 3rd came about. Question. My question was, that had been a concern though. Answer. In the past, not probably a month and a half then. Question. That's your best guesstimate? Answer. Yes, sir. As I said, there was a concern, but it wasn't at that time. Everything had seemed to be taking care of itself. So according to this line of questioning, Heidi was concerned with her own safety when opening the store alone. And this went on until Law said he thought that situation took care of itself about a month prior to Heidi's vanishing. But Fahey seemed to think there was a meeting about the concern that happened just a week before Heidi was kidnapped. Law said he could not honestly say whether or not that happened. No specifics about this concern ever came up again in the trial. The other thing that didn't come up while Law was on the stand was the rumor about Heidi Allen potentially being a drug informant for the Oswego County Sheriff's Office. In the last episode, we heard John Swinskowski's recollection of the morning of Heidi's disappearance and that his recollection got more detailed as time went on. When Dodd questioned Swinskowski on the witness stand, his testimony aligned more with the second statement that he gave to police, which was more consistent with the theory that Richard Thibodeau was involved in Heidi's kidnapping. But Richard wasn't on trial yet. This was Gary's trial, and nowhere in any of Swinskowski's statements was Gary ever mentioned. Dodd's questioning of Swinskowski was to try and show that Richard Thibodeau was involved and that someone was inside of Richard's van while he was in the store. But when Gary's lawyer, Joe Fahey, cross-examined Swinskowski, he said he didn't see anyone inside of Richard's van when he walked right by it. When Dodd got the chance to redirect, he followed up on that. Question. Now, Mr. Fahey asked you if you saw any persons inside of the van. Do you recall that? Answer. Yes, I did. Question. John, do you remember looking into the van? Answer. I don't recall looking into the van. Question. Your testimony is, you didn't see anybody inside the van. Is that correct? Answer. That's correct. Question. But you don't recall if you looked inside the van. Answer. I wasn't worried about looking inside the van at that time. No. It sounds like what Dodd is trying to say is that because Swinskowski did not look inside of the van deliberately, that Gary Thibodeau could have been inside the van. But Swinskowski's testimony doesn't prove that Gary Thibodeau was anywhere near the DNW convenience store the morning that Heidi was taken. After Swinskowski was called to testify, the prosecution called their next witness, Chris Bivens. What were your thoughts on Bivens' testimony? I think he was completely unreliable. You know, I mean... Uh... Uh, he, he did change his, his account many, many times, and I think uh, he was doing that and encouraged to do that, I should say, each time he was interviewed by the, uh, by the police in Swigo County. On the stand, Bivens answered all of Dodd's questions with no issues. But when the time came for the defense to cross-examine Bivens, that changed. Almost every other question the defense asked Bivens was met with contention. Bivens was a key witness in this trial, but his testimony seemed to just muddy the waters for everyone. Dodd did what he could to establish Bivens as an automotive repair expert, 
And this was important because Bivens was the only person who would be able to put Richard Thibodeau's van at the scene of the crime while it was happening. Dodd, what do you do for A&P Auto Parts, Chris? Bivens, I'm an engine builder mechanic. Dodd, now, have you had any vocational training in the area of engine building, auto body repair? Bivens, I'm self-educated. Dodd, how long have you worked in that particular area for, Chris? Bivens, all my life. Dodd, and how familiar are you with automobile body repair? Bivens, I feel I'm the best there is. Bivens claimed he drove by the D&W convenience store the morning of Heidi Allen's disappearance and looked in the parking lot as he passed by, and he witnessed Heidi being taken by two men. The first time he called police, he said he could not identify any persons or any vehicles. This according to the original notes taken by police when Bivens called in. But his recollection seemed to get clearer as time went on. Dodd, now you testified you saw a vehicle, is that correct? Bivens, yes I did. Dodd, what type of vehicle did you see, sir? Bivens, it was a Chevy C10 van. It was approximately an 88 to 87 van in that area. Dodd ended up doubling down on this line of questioning. Dodd, was it a full-sized van or a medium-sized van? Bivens, it was a full-sized C10 van. Okay, a self-proclaimed automotive repair expert would be able to see a vehicle and identify a make and model. That's believable. But according to Deb Tracy, who has been selling classic cars and classic car parts for years. Uh, the witness in the case said that they saw an 87 or 88 Chevy C10 van. And the C10 was actually a pickup truck, not a van. So Bivens could not have actually seen a Chevy C10 van because the Chevy C10 model was actually a pickup truck. And yet, there was an evolution in Bivens' statements all the way through the trial. But after listening to all of the recorded interviews with Bivens, it was clear he put a lot of pressure on himself to help in any way he could. And also a possibility you'd submit to possibly being hypnotized. Yes, I will. Okay. Why would you think the uh, being hypnotized would happen? Well, because I saw the band mm -hmm. clear enough, and I'm trying to remember harder than what I should uh -huh. to describe the band. And through hypnosis, I was proven, was proven fact that you can get more information. Have you ever been? Back. Have you ever I've been? Never ever been hypnotized uh, in a way I don't believe in it. But if there would shine any light on the situation, I will go for it. Maybe that's why Bivens' statements changed so much and became so focused on the Thibodeaux. Remember, according to the original lead sheet, Bivens first called in with information on April eighth, nineteen ninety four at 6.25 p.m., and the notes from the call were transcribed by Investigator Jaeger. You might remember this being mentioned in the first episode. And these are the exact notes. On Route 104 and 104B at 8 a.m. to 8.30 a.m., while on way to church in Albion at D&W gas station, two guys arguing with girl off porch in front of station. Don't know if anything in hands saw vehicles at pump area, don't know what they were, driving alone, 
sure it was after 8 a.m., came back about 9 a.m., traveled Route 104 entire way. Can't describe people. Never been a customer in store. Those were the exact notes. Fast forward to when Bivens was interviewed by police, and he was somehow able to describe the vehicle he saw in detail. Describe the van to me in as much detail as you can. Uh, the van was a light blue and powder. It was an older van between a 79 and an 88. It looked like a Chevy, possibly uh, a Dodge van. I'm not sure if it was a window van. It did not have a tire rack on the back. It possibly could have been a two-tone with a dark blue center. Uh, if it had pinstripes on it, I would not say there's okay. a dark blue someplace, and I've seen a dark blue, and it was somewhere around there on the van or the guy wearing the coat. Okay, but the dark blue you describe as? I was estimating the center of the van was okay. painted a painted. dark blue. All right. During Bivens' testimony, he was questioned by Fahey about how fast he was going as he drove by the D&W convenience store. Bivens was adamant, saying that he didn't know how fast he was going because he doesn't look at the speedometer. But listen to Bivens' interview with Ralph Scruton on April 18, 1994, less than a month after the day in question. Did you slow down at the DMW? I did slow down. I was, doing, I was going about 40 miles an hour at that point in time because I was looking down at the speedometer and the gas gauge. At 40 miles per hour, it would take about 35 seconds to travel a quarter of a mile. To give you a better idea of what a quarter mile looks like, that is the length of nearly four and a half football fields. That is the absolute longest Bivens would have had to look into the DNW's parking lot. While on the witness stand, we know Bivens said the van was a C10, which cannot be true. The C10 Chevy model was actually a truck, but he was clear about what year the van he saw was. Quote, it was a Chevy C10 van. It was approximately an 88 to 87 van in that area. End quote. In the 1980s, the Chevy model van was the G10 series. And according to Deb Tracy, who we just heard from, throughout the 80s, the model's body didn't change very much. Okay, I might also mention... Um... You know, how close was the witness, or what angle were they viewing the van? Just because, you know, the Chevy G10 van, if you, you can go and just Google pictures yourself, it was so similar looking all through the 80s. I would really, <laughs> I would really question whether someone could look at one and say, hey, that's an 87 or an 88. It's also important to know that Richard's van was actually a 1976 G10 Chevy van, not an 88 or an 87. But when police went to Bivens in March of 1995, less than two months before Gary's trial, Bivens somehow ID'd Richard's van as the one he saw on the morning of Heidi's kidnapping. That is the van that was at the pumps. Okay, to clarify the pictures, Investigator Hall drove to Mr. Bivens' place of employment yesterday with two photographs of a 1976 Chevrolet C10 van, white in color, with the rear doors 
the side panel door and the front passenger door are really deep blue. dark blue in color. Yeah. Dark blue in color. This van, Mr. Bivens looked at yesterday and believed it to be the same van that he saw Easter Sunday morning at the BMW convenience store. He has again looked at those two plus one additional picture of this van showing a better rear photograph of the van and at this point Mr. Bivens believes that this is the same van he's seen at the pumps, at the pumps Easter Sunday morning with the two males and the one white female being held in a bear hug. Is that correct? Yes. So the van that Bivens just identified in that photograph had dark blue doors. And I think it's important to reiterate that Richard Thibodeau's van was and still is white. During Fahey's cross-examination, Bivens became combative to the point that he even said, quote, I wish I kept my mouth shut. I wish I never said a word, end quote. At that point, who could blame him for saying that? Holes had been poked through his statement, and he was taking on water on the stand. But the grilling wasn't over just yet. Question, and do you recall telling them four days later on April 22nd that you weren't sure what either one of them was wearing? Answer, I guess, I don't know. I don't look at guys. I'm a body repairman, and I look at women. Men just don't interest me. Question, and because you're a body repairman, you went overnight from 80% to 100% certain because of a rust spot and the trailer hitch? Isn't that right? Answer, trailer hitch. I was positive on the trailer. Question, even though you had never mentioned it to them anywhere previously in any of your interviews? Answer, I don't know if I did or not. I have no idea. Bivens was the prosecution's key witness, but who knew what to believe? The prosecution, though, had other witnesses with accounts of what happened, like Nancy Fabian, who was also called to the stand to testify at Gary Thibodeau's trial. Remember last episode? Fabian said she saw a van swerving behind her just a few miles from where Heidi was taken. Police showed Fabian a lineup of pictures of people, including both Thibodeau brothers, hoping she would be able to identify the driver of the van she saw which was believed to be the van used in the kidnapping of Heidi Allen. But Fabian was unable to identify anyone, and she said the van she saw the morning of Heidi's disappearance was blue, which is also how Bivens described it to police. But when police showed Fabian Richard Thibodeau's van, she positively ID'd it as the van she saw. This is all according to the original police notes and Fabian's statements. By merely showing a, sole, a single photo to the witness, you're communicating to the witness in some form or fashion that you believe that the person in the photo is responsible. In Fahey's mind, Nancy Fabian would not have identified Richard Thibodeau's van as the one she saw the morning of Heidi's kidnapping from a lineup of other vans. She did, after all, originally say the van she saw was blue. In Richard's van was very clearly white. I believed her when she said she couldn't, couldn't identify anybody driving the van, and I thought she was mistaken when she thought she could identify Richard Thibodeau's van. 
The jury also heard from Brittany Link, the teenager who said she saw Richard Thibodeau's van at Gary's house around the time of Heidi's abduction. She's a 13-year-old kid and she's susceptible to pressure. Fahey believed that Link was pressured into testifying against Gary and that she didn't really recall exactly when she would have seen Richard's van outside of Gary's house. Has Richard's van ever been to Gary's house? I'm sure it probably has. But unlike the other witnesses who claimed they saw Richard Thibodeau's van the morning of Heidi's kidnapping, the van Link said she saw was not blue. This is an excerpt from Link's testimony. Question. Now, when you saw a van, Brittany, where did you see that van to be located when you saw it out the window? Answer. I saw it in Gary's driveway, by the corner of the house. I could see some of Gary's bumper. I saw it was a Ford white van with a black stripe. Brittany Link, the 13-year-old girl who looked out her window for less than a minute after just waking up, was able to see Richard's van was white with a black stripe. But both Fabian and Bivens claimed the van they saw was blue. Something else to consider about Brittany Link's recollection of Easter morning, 1994, was when she came forward to talk to police. It was months after the kidnapping, and over a year after the kidnapping, when she ended up testifying in front of the jury. So, the underlying question, was Brittany Link remembering what she saw on Easter morning, or was she remembering a different day? Link even said, she had seen that van 20 or 30 times at Gary's house. Dodd argued that because it was Easter morning, Link absolutely remembered it. Quote, it sticks out in her mind because it's a big deal when you're a kid. It's a big deal. Easter baskets. End quote. Can you remember what cars you saw outside your window when you woke up last Easter? Let alone remember what time you woke up? Finally, it was time for Dodd's star witnesses, Robert Baldessaro and James McDonald, the jailhouse informants who said Gary made admissions in the Worcester House of Corrections. You heard from Baldessaro in the first episode while he was talking to law enforcement on July 21st, 1994. I don't, like I said, this is what he's telling me now. If he's lying, then you'll know more than me, but he said she worked at a convenience store. That's where she disappeared from. He said he was with her the morning before she disappeared, but he dropped her back off. And he did mention something, I can't, I'm not percent sure, but uh, there's some something in the back of his brother's van on the rugs that they were trying to say was blood, or I don't know, something like that. During his testimony, Baldessaro gave a story that really didn't fit the facts that were already established in this case. Quote, he said, well, him and his brother went down to talk to her because she was upset and they wanted to try and straighten things out. That she thought they were, Gary was going to try and screw her about something and she was really upset. So they went down, they wanted to have a conversation with her. Gary said that when he got there, they got in the van, they drove up by the woods by his house, they talked to her, Gary got out at his house, his brother drove this girl back to the store, dropped her off, and then remembered he forgot to get cigarettes. When he went back to get cigarettes, there was nobody at the store, end quote. And when James McDonald testified, his story didn't match the established facts 
or Baldessaro's story. This is pulled straight from the trial transcript as Dodd asked the questions. Question. Do you recall anything else he said at that time, James? Answer. And I believe, I'm not too sure if it was me or Bob, but one of us asked him why they were investigating him and his brother. And he said, because they went there early that morning to purchase cigarettes. That's basically what I can remember him saying. McDonald's statement doesn't even match what the other jailhouse informant's story was. Then, McDonald said that Gary told them Heidi Allen was killed with a shovel and that it was Gary's small army fold-up shovel. It's important to remember that police found no evidence at Gary's place or in Richard's van, no blood, no hair, no nothing, that would corroborate the story told by McDonald. According to a report by the New York State Police Forensic Investigation Center, two different types of shovels were tested for blood and DNA. One shovel labeled as a folding shovel and another labeled as a short spades shovel, neither of which had any trace of blood, according to the report. And according to a police report of evidence gathered from Gary Thibodeau's property, nowhere on the list was a folding shovel. This is the list of evidence gathered from Gary's property from July 26, 1994. Around nose shovel, newspapers, possible bone fragments, assorted motel room keys, a Kodak S100EF 35mm camera with 24 EXP film, assorted letters, a folding knife and gun belt, a pair of white sneakers, a Bowie knife, a hacksaw, a machete knife, two coping saws, and a black trunk with a rain suit, plastic cups, two pair of boots, candle, earring, hatchet, and newspapers. There was also no mention of any type of shovel in the report of evidence gathered from Gary's Cadillac. So where did law enforcement get a folding shovel from? I have seen no explanation anywhere about where a folding shovel was recovered. Also, Heidi was still missing, meaning there was no body. In fact, for all they knew, at that time, Heidi could have still been alive. Were these two informants reliable? They, he didn't think so. Now, the thing about informant testimony is it's notoriously unreliable and oftentimes false. In fact, Vahey thought the use of these two jailhouse informants was unjust. The use of Baldessero and McDonald was probably the most disgraceful thing I'd seen during the trial. Why is that? Why did... be, be, because they were informants who I don't believe were telling the truth and had much to gain by, uh, by what they did. Of the 49 witnesses who testified at the trial, one of them was Gary Thibodeau himself. And during Gary's testimony, Fahey asked him about the search for Heidi Allen that he had participated in. Question, and were you able to participate in the search for the whole time? Answer, no, I wasn't. I could only do walked down one side of the road, and my feet started bothering me, so I sat in the van while they continued. Question. Now, you said your feet started to bother you. Have you had some injury to your feet? Answer. Yes, I had an industrial accident. I shattered both heels and broke both ankles, and had my toes amputated on my left foot. And they had to take bones from my hips and put them in my heels and try and build my heels back up 
so I'd be able to walk. So the jury was asked to believe that the young and athletic Heidi Allen, who was commonly referred to as the Tower of Power on the volleyball court, was kidnapped by a middle-aged man who couldn't walk down the road without taking a break, and his five foot five brother. The rest of Gary's testimony was consistent with what he had been saying from the beginning. The trial was nearing an end, and the jury had heard testimonies from dozens of people and had seen no physical evidence implicating Gary Thibodeau. It was now time for the jury to hear closing arguments from both sides. The defense presented first, and the prosecution had the advantage of having the final words. This is how it goes because the prosecution has the burden of proof. During Fahey's closing, he went through each witness's story and did his best to show the contradictions within them. Dodd, on the other hand, focused his closing statement not what on he could prove, but more on what he said he didn't have to prove. Quote, First, I want to start by telling you that I do not have to prove everything that you've heard from all of the people's witnesses that testified beyond a reasonable doubt. I do not have to do that. End quote. So what did Dodd have to prove? Quote, This young lady, ladies and gentlemen, is dead. That's one of the elements that I do have to prove to you. How could that be proven? There was no body. There was no blood. There was no physical evidence that the Thibodeau brothers were even responsible for Heidi's kidnapping. The only proof Dodd had that Heidi was dead was that she had not contacted anyone she normally would have since her kidnapping. After trying to prove that Heidi was dead, Dodd went back to explaining the things that he absolutely did not have to prove. Quote, I absolutely do not need to prove motive, end quote. Dodd wasn't wrong. He did not have to prove motive. But Dodd brought this up because Gary had no motive to kidnap Heidi Allen. The only reason Gary would have to commit this crime came from the jailhouse informants who said Heidi was upset with Gary and he was going to screw her out of a deal. Here's what Dodd said about that in his closing argument. Quote, They told you that this particular defendant had described that he and his brother had gone to the DNW convenience store and that this defendant went there because that girl was upset about something that may have had to do with drugs. Now, I agree with Mr. Fahey. The testimony you have heard from Brett Law, Sue Allen, Ken Allen tend to support that Heidi Allen would have nothing to do with drugs. But you know something, ladies and gentlemen? We don't know. And that's the plain fact of it. We don't know. End quote. There was a lot of unknown about this case, including what physical evidence there was connecting Gary Thibodeau to this kidnapping. But Dodd had a rebuttal for that in his closing argument. Quote, physical evidence is not all that is cracked up to be. If all of a sudden you find yourself saying, but there's no physical evidence, remember what the experts have told you. It's a factor you can consider, but it is clearly clearly the exception. It is not the rule. End quote. While reading his closing statement, I'm not even sure what Dodd was trying to say or what his point was. Dodd just talked in circles, which is how he spoke throughout the entire trial. But it seems like he was trying to say the lack of physical evidence doesn't matter. After Dodd finished his closing argument, the jury was tasked with deliberating and deciding on a verdict. 
was Gary Thibodeau guilty of the kidnapping and presumed murder of Heidi Allen? According to Beth Head, who sat in as juror number three, the jury deliberated for four hours. The thing was, there wasn't really any hard evidence at all. And the judge just said, go by what, who, who do you find the most believable? And go by your best, best uh, you know, judgment. After deliberating for hours, the jury came back with its decision. The verdict on the next episode of Peebles for the People. Oh, won't you let that free man go? Lord, you let that free man go. Lord, you let that free man go.